This is the Stark Truth, hosted by Robert Stark. Brought to you by StarkTruthRadio.com. Robert Stark is an American journalist and political commentator. You can listen to his podcast at www.starktruthradio.com. Kevin uh, Kautzman, uh, he's a playwright, uh, he has a new play out, uh, Moderation, uh, and he's also co-host of uh, Art of Dark podcast, and uh, also has written for web series. Uh, Kevin, it's great having you on the show. Yeah, hey, thanks for having me, Robert. I appreciate it. You nailed the uh, the pronunci- uh, pronunciation of my, my surname there, so I appreciate that. <laughs> First try. Yeah. yeah, it seems pretty simple. It- you get a lot of mispronunciation. Well, I mean, over the years, you get you get some weird ones. Kootsman, Kotsman, they just uh, they just can't hit it. So no, that's fine. I appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I've I've taken some German lessons, so there you go. That's probably what it is. But I could see, I could see why for some people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it. We picked up the tea at Ellis Island. We really probably shouldn't have the tea, but Anglo's can't quite hit the the German uh, Z, so we picked up the tea. So, uh, with moderation, that play, uh, that's premiering online. That's an online performance. Like, with like COVID, there's not as many uh, in-person performances. Uh, can you talk about moderation? And uh, is this your premiere play? Or have, you're a playwright. Have you written a number of other ones? Yeah, I've written quite a few plays over the years. Uh, moderation is my latest, and... Uh, What's coming out tomorrow, which is going to be Sunday, March 21st at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, uh, is the latest iteration of the play. There's a theater company in Manhattan called Up Theater. They're they're based in uh, Washington uh, Washington Heights, so way uptown. I happen to uh, have lived there for like five years I lived in the Heights. But I never met these folks uh, while I was living there. It was only after uh, I, I sent this play around and they they picked it up. Uh, it it is a Zoom kind of a, it's a reading really of the play. So uh, you know the the play has two actors. It's going to be presented uh, by Zoom. We've already pre-recorded it. It was edited, and then after that, there's going to be a talk back. Um, the play is a it's a dark comedy about social media content moderators losing their minds at work. Uh, <laughs> and so the play, if you want to learn more about it, everything is at moderationplay.com. What you're going to find there is a uh, podcast version of the play, which itself was in turn based off a previous Zoom reading of the, of the play that a theater company in Washington, uh, Washington D.C. did. So there's a theater company called Spooky Action. Uh, they did a Zoom reading of the play. This is all a very good sign for the extended life of the play because when we come back, you know, online in in the real world, such as it is, um, 
it probably means the player is going to have a nice, good, long life. But for now, we're kind of we're stuck on Zoom. So, long story short, I met um, Jeff Giese online. I met him uh, on on the Bird website, and he reached out. Really liked the play. We adapted the the DC Theater Company's uh, uh, performance of it into a podcast. So, if you want to listen to that, go to moderationplay.com. But I'm also going to keep that updated because, again, there's this this thing happening um, tomorrow that this uh, this new theater company is going to do, and there's another theater company in Manhattan that wants to do yet a third uh, Zoom-style reading of this this summer. So it's a, it's a very interesting thing, and, and it's really cool to see a play like come to life like that. Do you want to mention your other plays previous to that? Like, what was your how long have you been a playwright, and uh, how sure. just the background of how you got into yeah. Uh, writing? Yeah, sure. So uh, hmm, I wrote my first play in. Jeez, I'm trying to remember. I mean, it's been almost 15 years now. When uh, you know, when I went into the theater, and uh, I had a uh, a play that I wrote uh, in grad school, which was my MFA play. Uh, it's called Dream of Perfect Sleep. I wrote that uh, in 2011, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. This is all, it's all kind of a blur. Uh, <laughs> and uh, that had a nice, uh, solid premiere in London at a theater called the Finborough, um, which is a very, very cool uh, pub theater uh, in West London that kind of punches above its weight. If you know uh, the play The Pillow Man, if I'm not mistaken, it premiered there. Um, yeah, you know, and I had reviews in The Guardian and everything. There's a, uh, there's a producer who, oh, not a producer, excuse me, a publisher, um, who I sent my play. Uh, it's a it's a play about. It's actually kind of funny. Um, it's a play about online sex work. It's called If You Start a Fire, Be Prepared to Burn. And that see the had, one, the web series, the Money Shot Show. Is that connected? Yep. Yep. Right. So If You Start a Fire, Be Prepared to Burn. I had had a production in uh, in Michigan, and then a production in New York City, uh, and wasn't really widely reviewed. But out of that, uh, one of these publishers. Um, they publish these like uh, annual monologue books for actors, right? Actors are always hungry for new monologues. They typically have to bring, you know, for auditions, they have to bring like a classical monologue and then a modern contemporary monologue. And every year, um, the actual full script of Fire uh, to date hasn't been published, but one of the monologues from it has. Um, so every year I would hear from actors, you know, hey, can you send me the full script or is it published? And I would have to say, well, I'll send it to you. Here's the PDF, but it's not in print yet. Well, you know, now flash forward 10 years, uh, we now live in you know, the OnlyFans hellscape, uh, and, you know, where, where this, this stuff has sort of conquered the world. My play was maybe, and this is going to sound boastful, but it was maybe a little too, too ahead of the culture, right? Um, so I send it to this publisher and I say, hey, look, you know, check this out and check out moneyshotshow.com, which is this comedy web series that's based on a pilot that we wrote, which is in turn based on the concept of the play, you know, a lot going on there. So I sent it to him and he, he got back and it's a, it's this great publisher, Broadway play publishing. They're one of the big publishers and they're going to, um, publish a new edition of dream, uh, dream of perfect sleep, uh, which is cool. That was published in the UK, but no American publisher has, has picked it up yet. Um, and then they're going to publish, uh, the first edition of if you start a fire, be prepared to burn. So I'm kind of pitching those, um, yeah, and if people want to check out moneyshotshow.com, it's just five uh, uh, webisodes in this comedy web series about 
kind of the, the funnier side of, of online uh, sex work. And it's really more about the performance and the parasocial relationships and this sort of strange world that we now uh, ha- inhabit where we're living online. So your uh, podcast, which you co-host, uh, that's fairly new, uh, The Art of Darkness. Uh, it's a it's a podcast covering uh, artists, different historical figures. Uh, so far, you've done you've done several, including uh, Oscar Wilde, William S. Burroughs, and uh, a few others that I'm less familiar with. But is this just kind of artists in general, or there's a very specific uh, theme or niche in your interest? Yeah, so that's a podcast that I'm doing with my my very good buddy Brad Kelly, and uh, he and I met in graduate school. He's a novelist uh, himself, and the concept of the show is that uh, at this point, twice monthly, uh, we introduce one another to the the life and the work of an artist uh, with an emphasis on their dark side. On the on the real dirt, right? So for Burroughs, that stuff is pretty obvious. We started with him; it seemed fitting. Uh, you know, not a very good man at all. <laughs> um, and that's and that's the focus. So we've done uh, to date. We've done uh, Burroughs. We did Wild. Uh, we did Gurdjieff, um, and then we're recording one uh, tomorrow. And Brad is handling that. And then after that, we're going to go on to Kubrick. We did another one. Um, Oh, the name escapes me. Let me. Uh, I'm gonna have to look it up right now. But yeah, people can find that. You did at, one on Kafka's sister. Uh, <laughs> she's not really. See, she's not really Kafka's sister. Um, but that's what they call Anna Kavan. Anna. Oh, Kavan. right, right. Yeah, yeah. Indeed, yeah. So we're. I listen. Yeah, I listened to some of that, but I'm less familiar with her. Yeah, right, and clearly I am too. Although Brad did a fine job, I'm just having to be extemporaneous here. But that was very interesting. I didn't, I didn't know about her. I want to read some of her work now that he's sort of introduced, uh, introduced me to it. But the whole point of that podcast is to sort of, I don't know, kind of remind ourselves that this this purity spiral that we're in in this culture is completely unsustainable, and that uh, imperfection and flaws and addictions and the dark side of of our of our humanity. Uh, are as essential to art as any uh, political signaling or or whatnot. It isn't to make an excuse for bad behavior, but it's to it's to emphasize and point out that the messiness of human life is going to come at you, and and artists have to work with that material. Um, yeah, I definitely yeah. want to get into the whole like discussion about like cancel culture, but to start sure. things off, I want to kind of look over uh, look over Oscar Wilde and his life story <laughs> and just kind of the the image of his uh, persona, obviously he was a playwright, and uh, kind of his background, like Oscar Wilde's place in and relationship with Victorian society, uh, what did you find most notable uh, about Oscar Wilde, either like his the commonly known persona, or stuff that you discovered that are less well known? Yeah, uh, the first things that, thing that pops into my mind is that he could really handle himself. And he was not uh, frail. He wasn't effete per se. Uh, he he was quite stout, and he would uh, he would knock heads, and he did so uh, at Oxford famously. There's a story where he he held his own against four um, you know fellows at the college. Uh, you know, and his um, the the father of the young man Bosey, who he had the infamous affair with. And, Is this and, the uh, affair that led to his imprisonment? Correct. Yes. Right. Um, the the father of Bosey 
uh, his name is on the rules for modern boxing. Uh, so and and uh, and and actually, uh, the name escapes me right now. But uh, you know, he, he knocked on Wilde's door at one point, and Wilde stood his ground and kind of fended him off. So this was not he wasn't some sort of like weakling. Um, which I think maybe we have this sort of. So you think bias. the stereotype is just because uh, he's a gay icon? Yeah, right. I mean, and maybe I'm, I, maybe I'm, you know, overreaching there. But yeah, I think there's this kind of weird dandy stereotype, this idea that we're, and it, and it wasn't that at all. And you know, he, he sort of wonderfully, he came to America, uh, and and was in America for I think over a year on a speaking tour. Uh, more or less in promotion of a play that was ba- or a musical that was kind of based on his life and his style, and he he went all the way west. He went all the way to you know I think he made it to California. Uh, yeah, his, uh, he had like a grand tour, like a speaking <laughs> tour, or just to travel. But he did have it go on a grand tour of America. Yeah, he went on a grand, and he brought that back to to England. And so it's it's kind of like maybe the the Beatles a little bit. There's sort of like okay, well you've made it in America. And now, if nothing else, he could have coasted on those stories about the American frontier uh, for for a decade. So this was, uh, I think this was like the late 19th century, so it would have been, yeah, he did right. find like the, it was still sort of like the, ta- maybe not, like the kind of tail end of like the Wild West, and he did practice yeah. uh, shooting with cowboys. Uh, he could basically outdrink most of them, and he did find <laughs> the kind of... Uh, yeah. Like the kind of culture of the Wild West, as refreshing as an alternative to uh, to bourgeois, like industrial Britain. San Francisco uh, was his favorite city. I mean, that was probably prior to it became uh, a hub for gay culture, but it was a kind of, it was San Francisco back then was still kind of, it was, it kind of got its start during the gold rush. It was where the, this was, I mean, this was after the gold rush, but where all the like miners would go like a lot of gambling and uh, uh, saloons, so that was probably, I guess, the image of San Francisco at that time. And then he also had an affinity for the South and uh, also like the Confederate cause. Yeah, yeah, these things are not at all what we would project backward. And so reading about that, you know, was really, really fascinating. And remembering too that um, that the Irish were. Um, Reviled. Uh, well, he was. Uh, now, but they were, wasn't he born in Ireland? But I think he was English. Like he was like he grew up he, Protestant. Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, he was. He was a Protestant. But there, there were um, cartoonish depictions of him. Uh, I think it was in Harper's Magazine, if I'm not mistaken. I have a copy of the latest Harper's here, uh, where he was depicted kind of like looking like a monkey. Oh yeah, um, yeah. And it was satiri- satirizing him. Um, you in know, the this like in it. the U.S. or in Britain? Uh, yeah, it was in it, it was in the United States. Yeah, so there's there's one right now. You can find a cover image of Harper's Weekly captioned "The Aesthetic Monkey." So they're saying it may be an Oscar Wilde satire. Um, so you know this may be somewhat uh, you know uh, apocryphal, but it's you know his reception was mixed in the United States. So he he caused a scandal, but he he used it to his advantage. Uh, until until it finally everything brought you know crashed in on him, <laughs> but that was many years later. Yeah, he had the philosophy of, of aestheticism, a truth and beauty, uh, art for the sake of uh, art, and uh, 
kind of relevant to like those who try to find beauty and ugliness and uh yeah like i think in your podcast you mentioned the example of like kind of beauty and horror ruin porn which uh, i mean mm. can't be fascinating but there's also a kind of kind of like with like woke culture there is this obsession with uh, seeing that there are no like beauty standards or taking something that's not that would have been considered ugly in the past and saying it's beautiful is a cliche in wokeness so it seems that like wild ad did he believed that that was like he saw that as like morally corrupt I'm not sure if there's like a exact quote but uh yeah he believed that beauty transcended uh economic and uh, moral concerns uh the philosophy of asceticism and uh, going back to like the neo neoclassicism of the era and the hellenistic or greco-roman ideal of the ascetic uh so yeah the belief that beauty transcends uh all other political concerns or is should be the focus uh, i'm not sure if it's more like asceticism is more about creating being an artist and like the purpose of art should be purely about beauty and aesthetics rather than social commentary could or does it go further to a political ideology but how much have you uh like how many sources do you have about like asceticism i mean you know for this episode i really focused on wild and his and his life what i what really shocked me and what what i think everybody should should expose themselves to is the prison letter that he wrote um de profundis and it's all laid out there uh, there's a, there's an excellent uh, performance of it, and uh, let me see if I can look it up right is now. His, his prison letter, is it more about his personal life, or is, does he get into the political philosophies? Uh, it's all there. Um, it, you know, it, it's, very, it's very thorough. It's about his relationship um, to, to, to God and forgiveness. It's, it's really wonderful. Um, you can listen to it all on YouTube. There's a there's a, a reading of it where this actor simply reads the entire letter um, and uh, and delivers and delivers Wilds kind of coming to God through through his time in prison. Um, so you know, as far as his specific politics, I think he I think he uh, lived kind of he, you know he he flirted with socialism. He I think he met with Shaw uh, at one point. But I don't think that his, um, you know, his life wasn't really political in the sense. He wasn't really a political thinker. He was primarily, primarily an artist and a satirist. So it was kind of, it was kind of a side yep. note. But it seems to be like I have like, if you research like the politics of Oscar Wilde, there's like a number of different sources on that. So it's a kind of, uh, he seemed to be have been al- aligned with the left of his day. But then you kind of have to ask like, where does he fit into uh, today's political? Uh, dichotomy yeah. kind of flirted like sometimes associated with like libertarian socialist but it does seem he had a kind of like aristocratic radical philosophy yeah, he was... influenced by uh, Nietzsche like he wasn't like a le- wasn't yep. like an egalitarian and then he was also kind of oh critical. not at all not at all yeah as a kind of like or almost kind of idea of like Aleister Crowley sometimes called like aristocratic communism kind of similar to that philosophy <laughs> And then also like the right. like the politics of the art, the concept of the artist as a creator, creator or sort of like Brahmin class, and very critical of the bourgeois society, but not from not so much from like your standard Marxist standpoint, but uh, more just like he did value he valued leisure, but in a sense a kind of aristocratic sense, but he did want to liberate the masses from labor 
and utility in order to create uh, art. So it's a kind of kind of like yeah. he dreamt of a post scarcity uh, economy that some are talking about with like uh, solutions with technological solutions like with uh, with automation and AI. Yeah, he was he was an elite, and I don't think he ever really tried to uh, present himself as you know, a common man by any means. That would have that that would have bothered him. Uh, you know, he <laughs> he has he had a quote about something you can never be uh, overdressed or or undereducated, something like that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so. Yeah, very interesting figure. I, I really enjoyed studying him, and his plays are amazing, uh, and they really hold up. We also, it's a, it's another interesting thing to try to trace back our culture of um, Instagram and the self and this sort of quasi-narcissistic uh, relationship we have with media and technology uh, to a figure like this, which is so grandiose and so flamboyant and so about the individual over the over the collective in a radical way um, where now we would take all this stuff for granted right we've gone through you know you, you can trace this forward to Crowley and then to the hippies and everything and this is the the def this is the, the society that we inhabit now for better or worse uh, it has tons of problems of course but at the time it was purely radical because of the Victorian uh, sensibility and the obsession of over status and the family and all the rest of it. It's really shown well in um, the great, you know, the importance of being earnest. It, it, you know, you owe it to yourself to watch the great classic film production of that. Um, if, you know, if you do nothing else with Oscar Wilde, I'd say uh, read or, or listen to the Neil Bartlett reading of De Profundis from the prison where he was, where, where Wilde was, uh, you know, um, imprisoned. Uh, and then also watch the importance of being earnest, the, the classic film version. Yep. Yeah, he does have a lot of like really witty, notable, kind of notable uh, quotes, and mm -hmm. uh, a lot, some of them are actually very uh, unwoke. But if you had to like select a handful of like the most notable of his quotes, yeah, I think I butchered that first one. Um, but it, you can never be overdressed or overeducated. <laughs> I think that's great. I mean, these are these are great. He had some wonderful ones. Let me see if I can find some uh, find some off the cuff here. Wild quotes. I mean, he would have. This is a guy who Twitter would have been made for him. He would have absolutely. Do you think he would have uh, been? Yeah. Uh, do you think he would have thrived, or do you think he would have been a target of cancel culture if he was alive today? <laughs> well, he he was a victim of cancel culture in the time. The entire society back back then was infested with a similar energy. We just have a new version of it. Course. Or even someone uh, like Milo. Like Milo is not. I wouldn't put Milo in the same. He's not of the same caliber. Like he's not as on an intellectual level, but in the sense of being like a showman, kind of a showman. There yeah. are some parallels. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I would possibly say that. Um, you're definitely trying to get a rise, and we live in a a society that's increasingly numb and atomized. So it, it feels like there's a fine line between artistic achievement and being a being someone who's simply famous for the sake of being famous I'm not speaking about Milo in particular but wild um, or yeah wild being started. about like he was he was a great artist and intellectual but he was also like about the spectacle 
Which is really he, taken he, off in media. Yes, and he was about the spectacle first. So he, so Wilde wrote uh, a book of poetry, uh, created this this figure of himself at Oxford, which was sort of famous for being, for having a certain style and a certain manner, uh, quietly a genius, legitimately a genius. You know, top of his class at at Trinity, top of his class at Oxford, absolutely crushed. But he he was intentionally seen to never be studying. <laughs> so he surprised them all. Um, and then he, to come to London uh, with all this swagger, but very little to show for it, his first, uh, his first book of poems were, were panned, uh, but, but he's famous for being famous. The, Gilbert and Sullivan made this uh, play, or this, this musical, mocking Oscar Wilde's style, and that's when they sent him to America to front run the play or the, the musical in order to educate the Americans in what was being satirized because Wilde was this figurehead. Uh, but then he would go on. So he's, he's definitely, like I said, he's somebody who could have just simply coasted on this. He could have uh, just been in high society and, and made a living lecturing perhaps and never actually creating something. But then he did go on to write some of the finest um, plays of, of his era um, uh, and legitimately created these incredible works of art. And Dorian Gray has one novel that still holds up, that's still read and, and referenced. Uh, the, the, the four or five major plays are still referenced. So this is a guy who uh, you know, could back up his, his bark with a bite. Um, I, have, I have a quote because we missed that. Um, he, this is a good one and very pertinent to what cancel culture and how I think a lot of it is um, competition for increasingly scarce uh, resources and opportunities to, to actually achieve distinction in a, in a society that's been flattened out and kind of numbed by this, by this technology. And then also just a garbage, quote unquote, real economy. So it's like people are just battling for these, for attention and, and all the rest. But he, he said this, a good friend will always stab you in the front. <laughs> huh. That's a good one, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so there's a lot to chew on there. I hope I'm not going on too much, but um, yeah, so such an interesting figure, and I think worth, um, you know, here, here's another good one. Um, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. <laughs> so there's that. There's that radical, radical self, 19th century. Yeah, so the other uh, podcast you recorded was on a William S. Uh, Burroughs, and uh, so this is a, a time frame, it's a much, it's uh, maybe about like 50 years later in history, but there are like some some parallels, uh, but Burroughs is associated more with the Beatniks, and uh, he was also from an elite background, uh, he, William S. Burroughs came from a wealthy family it was think it was yeah Missouri and he was uh he was a closet going over kind of his biographical details uh yeah he was closeted about his homosexuality in his youth and that's I mean taking into account like what era he grew up in like 20 would have been like the 20s and and 30s and he was also fairly uh late to writing uh maybe uh, Burroughs got started uh, probably in his 30s maybe 40s and uh to start things off, uh, can you give sort of like a background, like where was Burroughs like in, in his youth? I guess some of the other connections, like his family, his family connections did bail him out of trouble prior to the whole, to the murder with his wife. 
And then he was a, for a while he was an exterminator, yeah. which was inspiration for Naked Lunch, and uh, he was kind of like a kind of a neat, and he did like really va- seem to value va- kind of like value leisure, and uh, yeah, that's right, right, right. that's true with a lot of uh, creative types. But uh, he had he came from a wealthy family, and then he did become he became like drug addict uh, drug addicted. I don't think he really got into hallucinogenics, which is uh, surprising. You'd assume that from Naked Lunch, but it seemed uh, mostly morphine and then later heroin. Yeah, yeah. He was he was a very difficult figure, and uh, this is an episode, if you listen to the, the podcast, it's at artofdarkpod.com. I covered the, the wild uh, episode. Uh, my colleague Brad uh, covered the Burroughs episode, so I might not be quite as, as versed in the Burroughs material, but... Uh, yeah, he, he was he was a really interesting figure who had a huge effect on uh, the beat generation, and uh, he, he, his life was completely completely wild. Um, but yes, as you mentioned, another elite, uh, another uh, bisexual, closeted homosexual figure, uh, had a tremendous effect on the culture. Still affects the culture. People still read him. Uh, and got got hammered one night in Mexico. Uh, I think it was Mexico City, and, this and very is, famously, I think it was uh, like a drinking game. So he had like a tequila shot yeah. on his wife's head, and he sh- he shot his wife accidentally yep. by with, through like a drinking game. The thing is, like, I don't think he was uh, ever like incarcerated or prosecuted for that, or he may have fled. He may yeah. have fled Mexico, but how much of a long term impact uh, did that have on him? Yeah. Uh, I'm sure that it, well, I mean, it affected, it affected him for the rest of his life. And, uh, it, he did associate that event with almost quite literally, uh, kind of a, um, demonic possession. I have it here. I mean, you know, so I'm looking at it. Burroughs described Volmer's death, his wife's death at his hands as a pivotal event in his life. Um, and he's saying it provoked his writing by exposing him to the risk of possession by a malevolent entity he called the ugly spirit. And then this is what he said. I am forced to the appalling conclusion that I, w- that I would never have become a writer but for Joan's death and to a realization of the extent to which this event has motivated and formulated my writing. I live with a constant threat of possession and a constant need to escape from possession from control. So the death of Joan brought me in contact with the invader, the ugly spirit, and maneuvered me into a lifelong struggle in which I have had no choice except to write my way out. So writing as this almost shamanic or, you know, like an exorcist. He was that. into, like, black magic like uh, Crowley was. Yep. Yeah, so uh, he was living in Mexico yeah. at the time, and uh, he kind of thrived, like, in the chaos of Mexico City, but uh doesn't seem like he was... I don't know if he was, like, pursuing hallucinogenic substances like ayahuasca, uh, yeah, I think it was mostly just like heroin, and then. But the thing is, he he I mean he wasn't really religious in a traditional sense, but he had his own esoteric uh, belief that there was this parallel universe that existed within the human mind, and uh, a lot of different kind of rituals like relevant to black magic. But then some of it almost seemed more kind of like magical thinking OCD. But uh, his own like a lot of you know, you, I, a lot of that kind of I, like I, uh, paranoia. Yeah like his kind of psychological or spiritual outlook is refer- is explored within Naked Lunch. 
Yeah, I, I do think I need to correct you because he did actively go out and try to find uh, ayahuasca uh, in the, I don't know, at a certain point after he left Mexico. He went to find that and apparently did. And he wrote a, he wrote a book about that experience called the Yage Letters. Yeah, he, it was letters between Burroughs and Ginsburg, rather. So, oh right. Uh, but his primary drug, yeah, the primary drug that we that we associate with him would definitely be, I think, heroin or morphine. Um, yeah, he was an addict for sure. So after Mexico, he later moved to North Africa. So it was a place, uh, the Tangier International Zone, and was like a, a kind of autonomous zone that was. Uh, it was like a collaboration of uh, the British, French, and Spaniards, uh, like different kind of colonial powers. But it was like totally uh, anarch- anarchic and totally like libertine. Yep. And uh, that seems to be like where he got the inspiration for Naked Lunch from. Yeah, and that's the book that everybody reads, right? I mean, if you're going to read Burroughs, they say, ah, read Naked Lunch. And this is where, I don't know if he originated his method um, with it, but he... he really brought this um, cut-up technique is what it's called. And he apparently he didn't create it, but he popularized it. And uh, he brought, it, it actually looks like he was exposed to saying, Brian Geeson's cut-up technique, which was uh, from a painter. So he took this concept that he learned, uh, possibly, possibly in Paris, uh, and he brought it to the, the novel, to the writing of prose. So... He would sit on the floor and he would, you know, he'd, he'd write paragraphs and passages, and he would cut things and move things around to create this kind of um, schizoid or uh, unusual and unexpected uh, prose, which people still read, and, and that's a style that uh, some some writers will still dabble with that kind of how to break things up so that that the the unexpected associations can emerge um, from uh, randomness. And he, yeah, he did have Very a lot of kind of a conspiratorial thinker. That kind of yeah, the kind of paranoia it is not- noticeable in a Naked Lunch. He would perform like a kind of like an OCD like ritual to destroy like a, a person or establishment uh, he had a problem with, and then the kind of theme of control, like the big lie or the big machine, and uh, also his yeah. interest in dark magic. Yeah, his family fortune came from this this adding machine, this counting machine. And I think he, he felt a personal sense of, of irony at that because he resented that world, that world of the, the bean counting. Uh, everything has to be quantified. Of course, when you come from family money and you're rich, you can kind of have a certain disdain for it, right? But he was definitely bucking against that that world of control and, and uh, the kind of um, arch, call it what you want, mercantile, uh, sensibility. Everything has to be counted. Everything has to be uh, in order and logical. And, and we're trying to make sense of a universe that obviously he lived through a scenario where he, he encountered um, like a hellish kind of chaos, a hellish kind of darkness. Uh, and then to be to be homosexual in the and an American in the middle of the 20th century and all the rest, all the problems that... that... But it does seem that both uh, Wilde and Burroughs What's interesting is they're both bi rather than just homosexual. It's hard to say, yeah. like, if his wife was, like, a beard or if he was just flat out bi. Yeah, right. It's it's difficult to, to say with both of them. Uh, you know, with Wilde, there's the quality of, like, he definitely loved his, his wife, and his wife supported him. 
to the end. Uh, and with some, with some obviously some major hiccups and problems. Uh, so what was that relationship? And, and with Burroughs, again, married, uh, but then also had this kind of flirtation with, um, uh, with almost yeah, borderline pederasty. Uh, you know, that was, that was sort of what he was up to in, um, in Tangiers and, uh, or just like a real darkness and a kind of, um, again, a life that, that now I just don't know, uh, <laughs> how long this goes on now under the, under the, um, the magnifying uh, scrutiny of, uh, the Wokanista. Was well, this um, kind of, uh, Burroughs lived in this kind of narrow window where it was, it was after, uh, the era of like traditionalism and social conservatism, but it was before the era that we were in today, which is much more controlled. So there was like this narrow win window, and especially like in the international zone, where of yeah. like more freedom to be able, to be kind of anonymous, where you're free from traditional social bonds. But it was prior to the information age, right? And you have this this quality with figures like Burroughs, uh, people from this period, even uh, Anna Kavan is um, sort of a contemporary of his, also came from money, which this seems to be a trend. We're going to, as we go along, we're going to really try to explore different um, different artists. We're starting kind of with a, a certain uh, bent, but we're going to consciously make a choice to kind of veer away from maybe the more common names once we build an audience. And but you said uh, Stanley but, Kubrick will uh, probably be next. Yeah, that's for me. I'm excited to do that. Yeah, I think uh, Kubrick's a fascinating figure, um, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big, big, big fan. Um, you know, with Burroughs and, and Kavan, and I'm also thinking now about Hemingway, someone I know an awful lot about because I wrote a play uh, about, about Hemingway and his final days. Actually, here in Minnesota, many people don't know that Hemingway had two rounds of electroshock therapy at the end of his life at, at Mayo Clinic here in Minnesota. Uh, the final round was only a few days before he, he blew his brains out in, in Ketchum. Um, but the, the, the point I'm making is that those kind of mid-century writers, in Kavan's case, kind of an internationalist Brit with money um, in, in Burroughs and then in Hemingway's case, Americans, and Hemingway kind of maneuvered himself into money, but he, he had some, you know, in the beginning too. His father was a doctor. Uh, Burroughs came from some pretty serious family money. If you had serious American family money in the middle of the century, you could you could go literally at almost anywhere in the world um, and just live with complete, uh, you know, you were just completely at liberty. Uh, impossible to overstate how far the dollar went. You read these stories about about all these characters and they're just constantly on the move they're constantly traveling they they never seem to really have jobs um uh so and then there's un this unfortunate thing that happens where it's like then those are the voices that you hear from uh and uh, they, uh then meanwhile you got to go to work uh, at the uh <laughs> at wherever you got to go work and then you can't figure out why you why you can't make art and all the rest of it i want to uh, get back to like burrows uh and uh, naked lunch but uh yeah, uh, I touched on this theme with uh, the philosophy of uh, Oscar Wilde, but what are your thoughts on like the economics of the arts and like the viability and uh, the kind of mechani economic mechanisms that that influence like uh, who gets who gets discovered and and who thrives? Yeah, it's tricky. Uh, I I certainly don't come from money, and yet I've I've managed to write plays and all the rest. I've had some help along the way. Uh, you know, uh, the I was able to go to grad school on this fellowship at Texas, and I was able to spend 
three years more or less writing. Uh, although it's kind of always clear, it's, it's always clear when somebody has money. They just seem to, just things seem to go a little differently for them. Uh, yeah, there's a real, there is a real problem in the arts where it's, it's, it's adjacent to the problem of academia in that the people who tend to be able to stick around and make, make the big careers in academia uh, tend to not come from re real working class or even in increasingly lower middle class backgrounds. This is, this is very well known. And the, the process by which things, uh, people are filtered out uh, tend, to be, tend to be economic, and, and the, but also social and political. Um, they're constant value tests. Are you, are you one of us? Do you fit in and all the rest? Um, you know, I, I, think it's, I think it's really, really hard to find authentic uh, working and even increasingly um, middle class, lower middle class voices um, in the arts because I think we're so hard pressed to find any time. Uh, and then beyond that too, uh, people with families, if you start to have, um, have kids young, uh, it's really, really tough to put together a lifestyle that's going to allow you to, to spend the time that it takes to go and pursue a PhD. There are people who do it. I admire people who accomplish it. But I, I personally have, uh, have friends um, who, uh, I'm not going to name names, but I mean, uh, one of the most brilliant people I know um, has made his way to Silicon Valley. Uh, he was in, he was in the process of getting a PhD in the history of science and had been doing some original contributions and winning fellowships and all the rest. And uh, but he had a number of kids, and, and at a certain point he just hit a wall and said, "There's no future here." Uh, so you end up with this kind of ugly scenario where uh, a vast uh, category of people are excluded from from the arts and from from academia simply through economic pressure, and then you get what we have now, which is this. Uh, resounding, overwhelming echo chamber, uh, where where in in the academy, at least at least publicly, everybody leans one direction, and if you don't, you're you're run out on a rail. It doesn't seem like there's any viable uh, economic or political solution. Well, there's been like the kind of the issues of like patronage, but uh, throughout history, like going back to like the Renaissance, but it's always it's always been like a struggle throughout history. There's no like one clear solution. Yeah, I don't think there's an e easy answer. Yeah, no, I, 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 but you know, there, there are promising things. I mean, we have what these NFTs are very interesting. Can that get money into the hands of individual artists? Uh, the, you know, Substack subscribers, uh, Patreon. There are, there are ways. And uh, yeah, I'm kind of optimistic about the future of, uh, of the arts. It's, it's a very sticky subject. I'm sure we could go on and on and on about it. Yeah, with the naked lunch, uh, it's obviously surreal, dreamlike. Uh, with a very disorienting uh, plotline, uh, but also kind of an obsessive writing style. Yeah, it's a bit kind of OCD. And then his own like personal obsessions, like his own like sexual fetishes, are definitely referenced in Naked Lunch. And the fascination with the grotesque, the kind of influence, like the giant insects, like centipedes. The connection to being an exterminator and a lot of his his personal psychology, like you do feel like you're getting you're getting in his mind like the paranoia, but also the obsession and uh, yeah, like his own kind of obsessions and fetishes are are referenced. But then also like the theme of yeah, mind control is a big theme too. Yeah, and I think 
there's this idea that I encountered recently, and I can't recall the source, but it was something to the effect, well, it might have been something that I um, originated uh, by reading something else. In any event, I, I, this idea of Americans being paranoid uh, fascinates me because from the last the last century, right? Because the Europeans, Europe and, and, and Britain went through it. They went through it on a scale that that Americans simply didn't at home, the wars. And so, the you know, coming out of World War II, America developed this kind of arch paranoia. And this uh, was, Naked Lunch was written in the 50s. Yeah, right. And I think that it's probably an expression of that. And it's also uh, a quintessential book in terms of uh, fear of the, the suburbs and this sort of horror at, at what's going, what was going on in America at the time. Everybody's going to have a car. Uh, Mom and dad are going to be at home. You're going to have the 2.3 kids. We're, we're going to have you. Now that lifestyle seems like a fantasy for most Oh, of yeah, us. for sure. <laughs> it's like, oh, gosh, take me back. But at the time... Uh, so it was a theme yeah. of, like, uh, of emptiness, but from prosperity, not missing out on not having, like, one's uh, material needs uh, denied. Yeah, it's also a theme, like, uh, in a lot of film, like Suburban Gothic, like kind of like Lynch's Blue Velvet, as an example. Yeah, David Lynch is all about this. Twin Peaks is all about this. Uh, Blue Velvet is all about this. Um, there's this, yeah, there's this funny thing, though, that with that prosperity is that it always comes with strings attached. And these these people who have the, the, the good fortune to be the Trustafarians, uh, they have a lot of angst about it. And it isn't all gravy. Like, yes, you'd rather choose that, but it doesn't come from a void. Uh, and it comes with a lot of social expectations and a lot of obligations and a lot of weird guilt and all the rest, uh, from what I can tell. I've known, I've known a few people. Um, and I think Burroughs is a pretty good example of, of that. Uh, man, oh, man, I just want to be free. I don't want to be the, the adding machine air that doesn't define me. I have to do something else. I have to break up something. You know, I gotta, I gotta do something with this. I think probably drove him. I haven't seen Cronenberg's Naked Lunch yet. That'd be interesting to see. It's hard to kind of imagine. I think like Cronenberg obviously would have to tone down a lot of a lot of the material in that. But I haven't seen that yet. But I'm interested in checking that out. But I did recently watch uh, Cronenberg's uh, Nightcrawlers. And uh, actually, I had one of the actors in that on the show. Oh, cool. Yeah, I don't think I've seen Nightcrawlers, and it's been a long time since I've seen the film version of Naked Lunch. Uh, but as I recall, I mean, it's, it's a striking movie, probably worth uh, screening. Throw it on and sort of see what it does to your brain. Uh, I really enjoyed the uh, the Blauergeist episode, by the way. I think that oh, yeah, Blauer's yeah. a great follow. Yeah, he's a great follow on Twitter. That dude is a, a lot of fun. Every time I take a nap, I think about him. I go, ah. <laughs> you know. We talked about cinema, different uh, 80s films, including horror. And then we mm-hmm. also, he posts like a lot of like uh, aesthetic interior and architectural images. Yeah. Yeah, I really, I really dig his stuff, and he has uh, Doctor Jacoby from Twin Peaks as his avatar. Oh yeah, it's kind of, it is. I mean, it is kind of like asceticism, like presenting one's views, like instead of debating like political ideology, like the visual imagery uh, stands on its own as like uh, politics or philosophy. Yeah, he seems to be making a point about aesthetics that uh, is far-reaching, subtle, 
kind of like a collage. I mean, he's kind of a Twitter collage artist in, in a way, creating that account. I mean, I don't want to, I don't know what he thinks he's doing, but I, I really enjoy and appreciate it. Um, I didn't realize he was, he was, uh, he lives in Oregon. But, oh yeah. Uh, I think he's, yeah, that, he's from yeah. Portland. So with bros, yeah. uh, yeah, there's also, uh, the obscenity trial, uh, so Naked Lunch was oh, one right. of was actually it was outright banned for a while in the United States. I think it may have been the last major book to be banned in the U.S. on obscenity grounds. And Norman Mailer like stood up for him uh, in the in the trial. But I guess so. Uh, William S. Burroughs he was not overtly political, but he was kind of uh, yeah he was kind of a libertarian. But like as with. Uh, you described him as liberalism with a gun, so he was uh, he was had a kind of individualistic outlook. Uh, the, obviously, he, a lot of his writings was not was not woke by today's standards, but for his time, he did oppose like racism and homophobia. He was pro gun, kind of a libertarian. Yeah. But then also, he had a kind yeah, of aristocratic, sure. radical strain, I mean, like and, Oscar and look, Wilde did. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. There are some interesting parallels between between the two. And you know he was the, I think they're saying Naked Lunch was the kind of the final book to be prosecuted as obscene in Massachusetts, and then other states followed course. But yeah, they I think they beat that. Uh, so he was a uh, really a signature feature of the the '60s counterculture. Yeah, big yeah. Time. He had also had a kind of view of uh, he references the Naked Lunch about talks about like the a matriarchy as oppression but just in general like he is resentful of any kind of moral restrictions that society would impose upon the individual so it is a radical like a radical individualistic and free from any kind of social controls kind of ideology yeah and of course i'm sure for a figure like this it's a that's a matter of survival as much as anything else uh this is a character who i just don't think could have could have made it uh could have survived in in a society in a sort of normal kind of a box. I think he could have thrived like in a very narrow window, like what we said earlier. But I think he would have had it rough in like the 19th century, but also in like the very kind of controlled like cancel culture of today. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, he. Uh, I mean, I'm reading here right now that he he took one teaching position that Ginsburg got for him. But then he said, I'm never doing it again. You're, you're, they're quoting him here saying, you were giving out all this energy and nothing was coming back. Uh, now, of course, that's amazing if you can, again, if you could afford to not have to do work like that, more power to you. Some people find it uh, uh, edifying and, and rewarding. But I think, again, for someone like this, this is, this is a guy who was never house trained. <laughs> you know, he was never going to, he was never going to sit it on like a, a you know, what, like an advisory committee to see whether somebody gets tenure track or, <laughs> or not? I don't think that he was. It's hard to imagine him doing that. Um, and it has been a, gr a great disappointment of my life to see how how academia, how kind of neutered and bureaucratic uh, it's become. With the history of academia, it was kind of uh, originally academia was like a very small elite group, but there would be these like kind of eccentric geniuses who would be given, like, they would basically be supported, but then masses mm -hmm. of people got in, and it's become very much, like, it's more about, like, the, it's more about the bureaucracy rather than the uh, innovation and all these kind of strings attached. Like, you have this, 
Yeah, I mean, you do have the kind of uh, debate about about education reform, but that seems to be the case. Well, right. I mean, famously, uh, the administration has bloated. And so you have more administrators, more office holders, more bureaucrats, more functionaries, and fewer uh, professors in terms of a ratio. Uh, and then the professors have very little, have given away an awful lot of power at most of the universities, and the administrators now hold it. Polya has, to my mind, the, the most succinct and best take on it, which is uh, the entire uh, academic establishment is guilty of indenturing uh, an entire generation of students into these horrible loans, and all these so-called leftist professor, uh, professors did nothing to stand up and prevent that or stop that. And it's devastated an entire generation of young people. It is a huge part of the ongoing kind of subterranean class war that's happening in America, and uh, it's an absolute tragedy. You should listen to Polya on the subject. Uh, she would be an example of one of those eccentric professors. If you could take a class with her in, in Philadelphia, what an incredible thing. There are, there are some other notable examples. But in, a, but in a lot of cases, it's just, you know, degree farms, pump people through, try to get people through. And I, and I went all the way through grad school, so uh, there's a certain amount of hypocrisy here. But, I, again, I was paid to take my MFA. I would never tell anyone, probably now increasing anyone with a trust fund to go to an MFA program where you pay for it, pay $100,000, $150,000 to get some letters behind your name right now. Absolute, absolutely absurd. Go online, save the money, and if you're a, a good liberal, uh, think about what you could do, you and your family could do with that money to materially support uh, the people who actually need that money and not these administrators at these, um, these institutions which have completely become untethered from the reality of what it's like on the ground in America for most people. You want to have a fun day. Uh, save the money for your for your applications and and take a walk from uh, the UCLA campus to or uh, is it the USC campus? The U the USC can uh, is it the USC campus or the UCLA camp campus? I'm from LA. UCLA is on the west side and USC is downtown right. LA. The USC yeah yeah the USC campus. Take a walk from there and just walk right to Skid Row and have have a, have yourself a little nice little walk. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. And yeah, brutal. And you've got you, literally the the Brazilification of America and this apocalyptic landscape and then you walk you walk to the USC campus and it's Whole Foods and it's this completely cloistered sheltered thing. I mean, no shade on anyone who goes to that school. More power to you. I hope it works out for you and your family. But, but not, let's not play this let's not play this game and imagine uh, that that we're all quote unquote good liberals. Uh, at these schools because those institutions are anything but liberal in effect. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, with the debate about cancel culture, and uh, I think it was, yeah, especially Burroughs is probably the most controversial, but like looking kind of at, because uh, Burroughs was well, seemed to be well respected back in the 80s and 90s when the culture was a kind of a, kind of a more of a libertine culture. But it yeah. seems to be like we have this kind of like woke kind of neo-puritanism today and with cancel culture like these artists from the past are being analyzed and uh, I don't know if this has been an issue with kind of like Burroughs but there's this kind of cliche about uh, the cancel culture cliche versus the artist as a creator like the redeeming qualities versus uh, accusations of reprehensible behavior and just kind of assessing these people because they're they're dead now, but assessing like their uh, their legacies 
and how that's being brought up and like the moral kind of moralism of cancel culture. So like, what are your, like, bro, like, I guess Burroughs could be one example, but it applies to a lot of, a lot of public figures, both living and dead. Yeah, we're, we're applying a new standard or maybe an old standard that's been updated to a different time. And, uh, there's a lot of nuance to be had here. Uh, some of these artists get, get strange passes now too, because they, they're funneled through the trajectory of the, the 60s counterculture. And so they're still seen as necessary to the current generation of radicalism. Yeah, because I think really, Burroughs, uh, yeah. a lot of uh, kind of a liberal establishment types, uh, they, I think because he's sort of a precursor to the 60s era, which has some kind of sacredness, uh, that's excused. Yes. But there would be a double standard if you had someone who was younger, uh, who, was a, who was living today, and they were similar to Burroughs, but maybe outside of that woke framework than they would, might have been denounced. So there's a kind of, it is like the framework, as you said, like where he fits in, because he was a precursor to that, that gives him respectability. Yeah, he, he, but Yeah, but there are a lot of cases where uh, if someone is outside of the viewpoint of the establishment, then they would be completely like moralistic. We'd announce like some woke types. Yeah. Remember like some woke types say they wanted to like cancel the artist uh, Gauguin because he was too, maybe too right, libertine. Right, of course. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and Hemingway is another good example. Oh Hemingway, yeah. Hemingway now is considered completely uh, passe, <laughs> which, which is really unfortunate and frightening because uh, it's really difficult to overstate how, how important Hemingway's, uh, Hemingway's legacy is in terms of American letters and uh, just in terms of the work itself and how people who, they don't really bother going beyond the surface, uh, you know, look at, at him and who he, who he was. And of course, he was famously a man of the left. Well, the example like the Marquis de Sade is uh, respected in a lot of liberal circles because uh, he was in prison for his writings and then because he was kind of associated with the French Revolution, which was key to liberalism. Right. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of uh, double standards happening. Ditto with Ginsburg, too. Ginsburg, Ginsburg was associated with NAMBLA. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, you have this kind of weird, okay, but and yet everyone still has to read Howl and revere Howl. And it has to do with how pivotal and central those those books are to the culture and how they they're still kind of considered to be right on right on man so it's tricky but who knows how far it'll go and how deep deep it'll cut uh you know we'll see are we are we reaching the end of this uh this witch hunt hysteria uh, are we going to come out on the other end when when the economic forces shift again and people kind of want to return to some some sort of relaxation because it's it's a very tense way to live uh, and I don't think it can last forever. We'll see. As things stand now, it's getting more like more oppressive cancel culture. Like to see like will there be a backlash, and what happens? And it's I mean it is really hard to make these predictions. I do want to kind of mention like uh, with the beatniks like Burroughs and Ginsburg, uh, contrasting them with the hippies because they were the beatniks were a more kind of small elite group, while the hippies were basically they were a mass movement, so it's much more kind of conventional. To make the kind of contrast, I think when you have yeah. a small league group, it's going to be a lot more intellectually dy dynamic. I'm not like I'm fascinated with the the beatniks, 
the culture produced by the hippies is maybe uh, like not as intellectually stimulating. Yeah, I, I really don't know that I would think – I don't even associate the hippie movement with any sort of intellectualism. Yeah, I don't maybe think anything – yeah, not, yeah. A, not at all. Yeah. Uh, but definitely related. You are right, though. The Beatniks really did kind of what they kind of emerged out of the New York scene, uh, New York and then maybe San Francisco. Um, I can't wait to do an episode on um, – oh, my God, why the Bukowski. I can't wait to do that uh, Yeah, episode. Bukowski. Uh, what about Hunter yeah, – and then Hunter S. Thompson, too? Oh yeah, yeah. We'll do the Hunter episode, and we're gonna play all. We're gonna play all the hits, but we're gonna try to mix it up with with some names that maybe you haven't. You heard should of. also we'll, do one do on on Desaad, the Marquis Desaad. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah, that'll be a fun one. <laughs> that Fear and Loathing in uh, Las Vegas is more. It's it's much less controversial, obviously, than Naked Lunch, but the writing style is a bit is a bit similar. And I think someone said, like, someone compared my writing style to both Burroughs and to, I think, Thompson to a degree. Yeah, that's that's high praise. You know, one of my favorite factoids about Thompson is that he, uh, when he was just a, a journeyman writer, he was trying to get his, his sea legs, he typed out the entirety of some of the great novels. So he picked up Faulkner, he picked up um, Hemingway Fitzgerald. He was sort of influenced by the Beats, but he was, this was the 70s, so the era was a different era. Yeah, he was a man on his own, for sure, uh, but definitely influenced by the, by the Beats and Hemingway. Uh, but he, yeah, he was great. I, again, that's maybe a bit of a cliche guy to, you know, definitely part of the, part of the hits, but I, I went through my Thompson phase in the, uh, you know, when I was in university, and I think he's a good, he's a good uh, stopping point. Definitely kind of went off the rails as he as he got older, uh, but he lived hard and uh, yeah. But he's worth he's worth reading. Fear and Loathing is still a good book to read. I actually uh, prefer um, uh, Hell's Angels. I think that's a great read. It's it's a really solid piece of journalism uh, trying to dig into this counterculture uh, during a period where the Hell's Angels were the terror of the suburbs. Right, fascinating stuff. He got himself beat up. <laughs> for that book, doing the research on that one. So. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, he was like a gonzo journalism is what he was known for. Besides being an author, Kevin, uh, we're getting close to the end of the, of the show. Do you want to uh, plug your websites or any other upcoming projects? Yeah, Robert, I I really appreciate um, being had on the show here. This was a lot of fun. I like that you want to talk about philosophy and politics and really get into some of the. You know the deeper the deeper end of the pool. I appreciate that. Um, I'm at kevinkautzman.com. It's K-A-U-T-Z-M-A-N. Uh, if you're interested in the new play, uh, it's moderationplay.com, and then the podcast is artofdarkpod.com. I'm pretty active on Twitter. I'm too active on Twitter. I'll spout off a lot there. And uh, yeah, don't don't sleep on that play. I'm very excited about it. And. Uh, that play really tackles... And it will be available um, for the public subject, to watch subject. online. Yeah, it will, right. So we're going to do it tomorrow evening. It's going to be released, and then I'm going to do, do a talk back, but that then will, that then will exist online. Uh, and, of course, my, my sincere hope is that after lockdown nonsense ends, the play will, will see uh, productions in every major city across America, and so we can all go out and uh, be, in, be in the theater again, and see our neighbors and see our 
uh, you know, our friends and our family and actually go and do something that's cultural, uh, which maybe didn't come directly out of the, uh, the funnel of what's approved and accepted by the, uh, the quote-unquote establishment. Because it's a, it's a very um, difficult play that tackles the subject of social media and how it's slowly making us all crazy. <laughs> Not brought to you by Facebook. We'll check that out for sure. And Kevin yeah. Kautzman, great show, and thanks for being on. Awesome. Thank you, Robert.